Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada and however you have found our podcast we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website www.duncanchurch.com you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. Welcome to church, everybody. Uh, if you came in late, which like 95% of you did, and you missed the announcements, which about 95% of you did, my name is Ross Breikreitz. Now, if you're wondering and you're like, oh man, look at his hair, I really hope that's not the pastor, I have some bad news and some good news. The bad news is I am. I am a pastor here at DPC, but the good news is I'm not the pastor. Okay, a much more respectable looking man will be back at Christmas time. He is on sabbatical, uh, but I will be preaching to you guys this morning. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different with our sermon this morning. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to play a bit of a game. You've never played this game before. I've never played this game before because I just invented it, okay? But I did come up with a title for this game, and we're going to call it Assert the Convert, all right? That's the game we're going to play this morning, and there's really just two simple steps for how we play this game. So step one is this. All of you are going to play the position. You're going to play the role of reluctant convert, okay? So what that means is this. You, here's your background story, all right? Here's your backstory for your character. Uh, you grew up in the Jewish faith. All right, Old Testament style, and now you've heard about Jesus, and you've maybe like converted a little bit. You're dipping your toe in, and you're kind of starting to shift your weight into the Jesus camp. But you still have like a little, you could maybe go back this way still, right? You're, you're a little bit unsure, okay? So that's where you guys all are this morning, and here's the thing. One of your biggest hang-ups with shifting into complete faith in Jesus is this. You've heard the claims that Jesus is said to be a great high priest. He is said to sit in the position of high priest. And that's hard for you to wrap your mind around because here's what you know. That probably can't work because you know step number one, rule number one, requirement number one, like when the job opening for high priest comes out and they put the listing on like Indeed or Workopolis or ZipRecruiter or wherever you go to the local job board to see, okay, position, wow, high priest, all right. And then it goes down to like requirements. First one, must be born from the tribe of Levi. And you're like, shoot, I'll keep looking for another job opportunity. That's what you know, and you also know that Jesus was born from the tribe of Judah. So, this is a big sticking point for you. You're like, he can't be high priest, I can't compute this. So that's one of the reasons you're hesitant about going full Jesus, okay? Now, I will say this, this is a good sticking point to have. Why? Because this was a, a guideline that God himself had put in place. And just general rule of thumb, if God puts out a guideline, that's a good sticking point to have in your life. Okay? So, that's where you are. You are all reluctant converts, and you're sitting in that camp, and you're like, I don't think Jesus qualifies to be high priest. Uh, can you prove that to me. So that's step one. And then step two in playing this game is that I'm going to play the role of like narrator, okay? I'm going to read a document to you, and then I'm going to try and explain the best that I can what it says, what it's meaning, what it's arguing, the claims that are being made, and hopefully you're going to discover and see how Jesus more than qualifies for this position as high priest and then actually shatters the ceiling of high priest. 
Now, if you're anything like me, you're also now wondering, okay, but like, how do we win? Because that's what matters, right? If we're playing a game, we gotta win. Like, who wants, who's a winner here? Any, my wife better put up her hand, okay? I ruined Christmas last year because I beat her at Monopoly. Um, so we like to win in the Brightcrites household, and that's okay. So how do we win this game? Well, hopefully we will all win this game by crossing the finish line and discovering that, yes, Jesus absolutely qualifies for this position of great high priest. And then the people will rejoice. Now, all of this being said, this is, you know, I'm just having fun with you guys this morning, but the reality is this is exactly the atmosphere in this letter that we're coming to this morning, in this portion of the letter that we're going to be looking at. Our author gets to this point, and he's trying to get the people to really understand the legitimacy of Jesus sitting in the position of high priest. Now, many scholars actually believe that this chapter is like the paramount chapter in all of Hebrews. Like, this is it. It's almost as if the previous six chapters were like a bit of a slow burn, and now the bomb is going to go off. This is the whole point that our author has been building towards. So if you've been here at all for our sermon series, you know that Hebrews has kind of been following this very specific pattern, right? It's take a figure from the Old Testament, talk about it, and then show how Jesus is better and greater than that position. So our author's been writing and leading and guiding and carrying his readers and hopefully carrying us in this sermon series all along setting up this pattern to bring us here to chapter 7, where he's now going to make this big, grand statement about Jesus as high priest. In fact, starting right here, we're going to dip into beginning a conversation about uh, the high priest, and that's going to flow into the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and just all of kind of Old Testament worship. And this portion of the letter, this topic specifically, is now going to last for Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. So a huge portion of this book is going to be dedicated to a lot of the themes that we are going to discuss this morning. So how does our author transition into this topic that we're covering this morning? How does he launch into the topic of Jesus as high priest? Well, he's dipped his toe in the water a little bit previously in a couple chapters. But here at the end of chapter 6, this is what he says. He finishes off Hebrews 6 by saying, And Jesus has become our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Powerful, right? No. Right? For a lot of us, we're like, what? Like, if you walked in here and you aren't really, like, that familiar with church stuff or you're watching online in the future, you might be like, what is a Melchizedek? Right? Yeah, exactly. Who sneezed? Um, this, me, and if you guys, church family, you know I have a weird brain and imagination. My whole life, still to this day, when I hear the name, it sounds more like a sound or word. When I hear Melchizedek, I picture it as being like something that should show up at a fancy soiree on the charcuterie board. Like, I feel like it fits alongside words like gorgonzola or gouda or gruyere or fontina, right? It's like I walk into my friend's house for a dinner party and they're like, oh yes, and we have this great cheese platter that is capped off by a 15-year-old Melchizedek. And I'd be like, oh, okay, I like a sharp cheese. Um, so that is like how I picture this name. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the person of Melchizedek and why our author uses this rather obscure biblical character. So there's been a lot of uh, confusion, I would say, about Melchizedek over the years in the church. He's kind of like, you know, talked about but more than someone who has such a small role in the Bible usually is, all right? So what I want to do is I'm trying to make this as clear as I can this morning. I want this to be like your staple Melchizedek sermon. So 
Here are some of the objectives that we're going to cover this morning in our sermon. Number one is I just want to help explain to you who this guy is. I want to try and remove any of your confusion around his cameo appearance with Abraham back in the Old Testament. So that's the first thing that we want to do. And then I want to look at some of the different viewpoints that people have had and still have about Melchizedek uh, and his role and place in the Bible. And then lastly, I want us to see this morning why he proves, reveals, and showcases that Jesus is absolutely a great high priest, a, the great high priest. And then ultimately, as always, we hopefully are going to walk away with a deeper understanding of how phenomenal our Savior is and all that he has done for us. So if you haven't figured it out yet, we are in Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 7. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to do all of Hebrews 7. Okay, we got a lot of work to do this morning, but we're going to do it, okay? And I'm going to break it down into three chunks. So we're going to cover the whole chapter in three different sections. So if you're not there yet, get yourself to Hebrews chapter 7, however you feel you need to do it. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to pray quick. Lord, we come before you this morning and we thank you. Will you please speak to us? Well, no, you are always speaking to us through your word. Will you help us hear? Will you open our ears? Will you clear our minds? Will you clear our hearts? Will you wash over our consciences? Lord God, will you draw us in to Scripture in a powerful way, Lord God, that we leave changed because of your word? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, I am going to read through Hebrews 7 but I'm going to read faster than I normally would. And I'm not doing that as like a thing for the sake of time. I am doing that because the more that I have studied this chapter and the more that I have been studying Hebrews as a whole and the more that I've been hearing about like the importance and the weight of the conversation that is taking place right now, the more I can't help but feel like our writer wouldn't have been delivering it with absolute passion right? Like, like a machine gun, just a crescendo of truth coming off of his tongue. So I want to read our passage this morning, hopefully with a little bit of that energy. So just so you understand what is happening this morning. So starting off, we're going to just do Hebrews uh, chapter 7 verses 1 to 10. Here we go. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, he's like the son of man. He remains a priest forever. Just think going to repeat that. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become a priest to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descendants from Levi who had the promises. Oops, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor." Stopping there for now. So, what did we just cover here? Well, here we have our author explaining and retelling very quickly, but almost not very quickly, almost in more detail, than we have the original encounter between Abraham and this man, this king priest named Melchizedek. Now, if you're curious, he is talking about a story that takes place back in Genesis 14. 
So when Abraham and Lot, when they separate ways and they're living in two different areas, where Lot is living, that area is um, four kings rise up and they defeat five kings. And they carry off Lot and all the people in this area and they just take off with all of the plunder. Abraham hears about it and he goes, not on my watch. And he goes after these four kings, remember, who just beat five kings, and he beats them. And then after his great victory, he is now returning. And this is, it's on his return after this victory that he meets this Melchizedek. And so our author is explaining and retelling this story and what he's trying to do. One of the things that he's trying to showcase, one of the things that he's trying to highlight to his readers, one of the things that we should be seeing from the passage this morning is this. He is trying to showcase and reveal that there was a different line of priest, of high priest, than just the Levitical one. There was another one as well. This is what he is highlighting. And he's doing this to showcase the legitimacy of Jesus' seat as high priest. So, because he has said, he's made the claim, Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So, first of all, what he has to do is he has to legitimize the seat and the role and the position of Melchizedek as high priest, right? Because if he doesn't have a legitimate role, then it's useless to say Jesus follows him. So, this is what our author is doing. He's trying to bring legitimacy to Melchizedek, and, and showcase, in a sense, that Melchizedek's uh, priesthood is actually higher and better than the Levitical one. All right, now, if we're actually playing Assert the Convert this morning, um, here's what should have just happened right now. That should have been met with, like, disgust, Okay, as someone with a Jewish background and upbringing, to hear someone insinuate or suggest that there is a priesthood greater than the Levitical one, that should be met with like some pushback. So we're going to try that again because we're still playing the game. I'm going to mention that Melchizedek has a higher priesthood, and then you're all going to just like guffaw at me, however you prefer to do that. All right, so Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to Aaron's. No, it was. No. Okay, good. There's a couple of us still playing the game. I like it. Uh, it really, really was a bold claim back then. In fact, I have discovered it is still a very bold claim to be made today because this is what I learned this week. So if you are a uh, Jewish person, you have primarily, you have the Pentateuch and the Torah, those are two very key pieces of scripture for you. And that is just the way that they refer to the first five books of the Bible. We have them too, right? Those are the same five books of the Bible. But they have the Torah. Now, outside of the Torah, they have another book, and it is called the Talmud. Now, I am really hoping I don't uh, downplay it here if a, a Jewish friend ever sees this online in the future. I'm so sorry. I don't mean this to be offensive. The best way I can understand the Talmud for myself is that the Talmud is like the number one commentary on the Torah for the Jewish people. Okay? It's like if they need to understand something that is said in the Torah, they look to the Talmud. It is a collection of rabbinical teachings that take the, the law from the Torah and explain it and expand on it and talk about how it will apply to life today. And then it also instructs the Jewish people on how to view things theologically. Okay? Does that make sense? So the Talmud is like their key book outside of the Torah itself. And here's what I learned. They have been working through the Talmud to completely eradicate the legitimacy of Melchizedek. I'm going to read for you a quote. This is from the Talmud. It says this, Once Melchizedek, so this is what they're taught, Once Melchizedek, traditionally identified as Shem, I'll come back to that, once he placed the blessing of Abraham before the blessing of the omnipotent, God had the priesthood descend from Abraham and not from Shem. So first off, Shem. The Jewish people are taught through tradition, through the Talmud, that Shem, the son of Noah, yes, Noah and the ark, Melchizedek is Shem, his son. That's what the Jewish people are taught to believe today. 
So he moves to Jerusalem. Now, I didn't say this earlier, but he's called the king of Salem. That is Salem. It is also the word shalem. It is a short term for Jerusalem. So he moved to the city of Jerusalem. He was the king and the priest there. That's what they believe. They believe that this is Shem. So what they're saying is, if you were to go back to Genesis 14 and look at the encounter and exchange between Abraham and Melchizedek, they are right. What happens is Melchizedek goes, blesses Abraham, and then moves on to blessing God and the way he helped Abraham gain victory. And what the Jewish rabbis teach the people is that because the order was Abraham first, God second, God got mad, and then he took the mantle of high priest off of Melchizedek, off of Shem, placed it onto Abraham for him and his descendants to have. So they work to eradicate the legitimacy of Melchizedek as high priest so that the claim that Jesus is in his line is just useless, all right? That is what they are taught. Now, I will add this because I think it's worth noting. Uh, the Talmud was written around 500 uh, AD or Common Era. So that means the Talmud was written around, what's that, 460-ish, give or take, years after Jesus' death and resurrection and around 440, 430 years after Hebrews would have been written. So what I'm suggesting or just saying is this. The argument for Christ's legitimacy as high priest in the order of Melchizedek would have been around for a very, very long time, and they may have been working and looking for a way to discredit it. And in the year 500, when the Talmud was put together, this is what they landed on. So that's just a little bit of background explaining, but now back to Hebrews 7 and what our author is talking about. Well, he starts the chapter off with a quick summary of Abraham and Melchizedek's account. He explains what his names mean, and we're not going to get into that. It's right there, very simple and clear. But then he moves into saying, Melchizedek has neither father or mother, genealogy, or beginning or end of days. Now, this has been a verse that many people have used for a long time to try and build out the backstory of Melchizedek. They're like, hey, we need to figure out who this guy is. And some of the theories, like I've read, so, there are no end to Melchizedek theories, let me tell you. Um, the most interesting one is that he is actually an unfallen Adam, an extraterrestrial who has come down and had this encounter. Yeah, we, we at DPC do not park our vehicle there, okay? Let me just tell you, I don't even have to go to the board to ask. I can confidently tell you, that ain't where we hitch our wagon, okay? But that is one view. Uh, another one is that they believe he is the angel Gabriel. I'm like, okay, we're getting warmer, but still, I don't personally go there either. Uh, some people say that this is a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Jesus. So, uh, appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, these, there are numerous accounts in the Old Testament where it appears very much like Jesus is in the story, okay? And that is, if you're looking for a geeky term uh, regarding that, it's called the Christophany. So there are many people who think that this encounter with Melchizedek, Melchizedek is Jesus, and this is a moment of Christophany. And then this is the most common one, is this, that Melchizedek truly is just a Canaanite king who truly does know, worship, and serve the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and sits in the position of high priest. That is the most commonly held view. Uh, and I honest, I think that that might be where I would land myself. Either way, I will say this. I don't think any of that really is the point of what our author is trying to get at this morning. Because what he's doing is he's talking about, right? Remember, we're talking about what makes Melchizedek legitimate as a high priest. So in order to do that, you have to compare it to the way you get high priests at their current time. And what our author is trying to showcase is that he hasn't bothered. He doesn't put in the effort to say, and this is who his mom and dad is, and this is his genealogy, and this is how his life began, and how it ended. What he's trying to say is that no, Melchizedek is outside of that. Melchizedek is before that. He's suggesting Melchizedek is greater than that because his position wasn't contingent on his birthplace, it was contingent on the fact that God just called him and made him the first high priest ever in all of Scripture. 
He's saying this makes this man superior. These are secondary issues in the topic of why this man is high priest. No matter any of these things, God calls him, sets him apart, blesses him, equips him, and he is the first high priest in all of Scripture. His position leaps over racial and genealogical barriers. And he's introduced into this narrative to reveal that Abraham really, truly did encounter his God through this king-priest here in this encounter. It's trying to remind these people and show to them there are two distinctly, distinct, separate, and unique lines to be high priest. And Jesus comes from this one. And the thing of it is, is this one, the one of Melchizedek, it starts long before uh, Moses. It starts long before Aaron. It has began long before we will receive the laws and the tabernacle. And this is where Jesus is, inherits his priesthood from. Now, our author, though, at this point, it's like he still senses, okay, you're not convinced, readers. So then he shifts into, he's just like, so let's just take a look. Let's just take a look at how great he was. That's what he says. And I feel like he knows he's got a loaded gun here, right? Obviously, because he's prepared this argument. And he's like, it's almost like, <clears throat> have you guys ever had this? Had a conversation with your spouse or just someone in general? And like you have, let's say it was a receipt. Someone was like, I told you to buy that thing. And you're like, I bought it. And they're adamant. They're like, you didn't buy that. And you're just like, you have the receipt in your wallet. And you're like, what's... Let's just take a look, right? I'm just gonna just gonna open up my wallet. Let's just take a look and see if the receipt is in there. And the whole time you're like, I won. I won the argument. Sorry, I have a problem with winning. That's coming very obvious this morning. Pray for my wife. Um, but this is what I feel our author is like this morning. He's like, you know what? Let's just, you're not convinced? Let's just take a look. Let's just go back. Let's just review the encounter, how things went down between Abraham and Melchizedek, and let's see what the Bible tells us. Let's see what the story reveals to us about how great this guy is. So this is what he begins to do. He's starting to look at, at how just this very quick encounter, what we can learn from it and what it tells us about Melchizedek and his position. And so as we're going to do that for the rest of the message here, here's what we're going to do. We are going to see, there's a number of them, but I've broken it down. We're going to see three key and primary ways that this encounter will reveal that a Melchizedek priesthood is greater than a Levitical one. All right, so we're going to start with point number one, which the passages have already talked about this morning, and that's the tithes and the blessings. So the tithe that Abraham would give and the blessing that he would receive is communicating to us through this story that Melchizedek clearly is seated in a high place. Now, this is the first time in all of Scripture that a tithe is given. This is the first tithe that is ever given. This is the first time a tenth is ever given. This is like where it all begins. Now, here's the thing. The tithe, as this verse talks about, would go on to become a commandment, all right? The people in the future will be commanded to give to the high priest. In this moment, in this encounter, Abraham meets Melchizedek. It's not written. It's not law. It's not code. It's not even, so far in the Bible, practiced. And he's so moved by his encounter with this man, he goes, take a tenth of all that I have. This is a out of like his desire, out of longing. This, this is, these are the types of ties God hopes we will bring. He gives this out of uh, just sheer tithing and desire, not as a command. This alone, that alone should set things apart and speak volumes about who Melchizedek was, right? So this is what our author is drawing out. Now, here's the thing. Abraham was one of, if not the, the greatest, you know, key mark character, well, person from the Old Testament. And here he is acknowledging that this man is great. He is showing honor to Melchizedek. And he's also revealing what we're going to see is that he's like, me and this guy, we're on the same team. We play for the same team. We're on the same page and Abraham's going, I'm, I'm cool with aligning myself with you. 
That is what he is communicating through what is happening here. And here's how we know this. Because there's actually, and I learned this this week, um, there is a very often overlooked uh, part of Abraham's meeting with Melchizedek. And that's this. They're not the only two there. I learned that this week. They are not the only two people at this meeting. If you go back to Genesis 14, what you actually discover is this Melchizedek, he's kind of rude. Because Abraham is in a conversation with another king. He first is in a conversation with the king of Sodom, it tells us. And then Melchizedek just like rolls right on in, hijacks the conversation. And then Abraham goes back and finishes his convo with the king of Sodom. That's what the Bible tells us. In Genesis 14, verses 17 and 18, it says, after Abraham returned from his victory, this is before Melchizedek, says the king of Sodom went out to meet him. Now, here's the thing. The king of Sodom, it was his people and their belongings that had got taken. That's what went and got taken captive. And so he goes out to meet Abraham. So they, that maybe should have been like the key conversation. But what we discover is that Abraham doesn't want to align with this king in any way, shape, or form. Because the king of Sodom comes to him and he says, Hey, Abe, thank you so much for beating those guys when we couldn't. Here's the deal. I don't want to keep any of the belongings that you just earned. I just want my people back. And honestly, if I'm just looking at it like face value, I'm like, man, that's a good king, right? Like, that's pretty good. He cares for his people. He's so grateful. He's like, keep all of the bounty that you have inherited from your victory. Just return my people to me. I don't think this is such a bad deal to strike. And here's the thing. This is what this passage is revealing to us, the difference between this person and Melchizedek and how Abraham views him, how we are supposed to view Melchizedek, is because when the king does this, this is what Abraham says to the king of Sodom. I made an oath to God that I will not accept anything belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a ratchet sandal. I added that word, but they would have been nasty, okay? This is what he's saying. This is revealing to us right here in these two encounters in this moment. Abraham views Melchizedek up here. This man sits in a higher seat, a different position. There is such a big contrast. Melchizedek is seated higher than Abraham is what is being suggested. And this, once again, this is a bold statement. Like Hebrews is making such a bold statement because it was statements like these that almost got Jesus stoned during his ministry. Like back in John 8, during the time of Jesus, he's having a conversation with the people and they're like, uh, are you greater than our father Abraham? Who do you think you are? That's what the people say to Jesus during one conversation. And Jesus, I'm summarizing, he says a lot more, but he's like, uh, your father Abraham looked forward to my day with longing and also FYI, before Abraham, I am. And they are so offended, they pick up rocks to stone Jesus to death. Like, the statement, the dethroning of these key figures from the Old Testament was offensive to these people, yet this is exactly what Hebrews is saying. It is insinuating this through the tithe that Abraham would give and also through the blessing that he would receive because it just simply makes it very clear. The lesser person is blessed by the greater. Now, lastly, a couple more quick points here. Our author does make the suggestion as well that all Levitical priests offer that tithe to Melchizedek. They all tithe to him, honor, respect, showing to Melchizedek over their own priesthood. And because Abraham would have done that as a representative for his entire family line. And then also, which we touched on already, this was voluntary. This was not a command like all of the tithes that would come afterwards under the Levitical priesthood. So, jumping into point number two, how a Melchizedek priesthood is greater than a Levitical one. We're going to read verses 11 to 22 now. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? 
one in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said, that's Jesus, belonged to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one has become a priest not on the basis of regulations as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath Others become priests without any oath, but he has become a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn, and I will not change my mind, you are a priest forever. And because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Point number two is this. <clears throat> Everything has changed. Everything has now changed is what our author is suggesting. Because as we see from these passages, the Levitical priesthood was never meant to be forever. It was never, ever, ever meant to be forever because it was never going to accomplish the fullness that God intended for his people. Sin was never going to be fully dealt with under the Levitical priesthood. The only thing it was was exposed. It was showcased, it was displayed, but it was never dealt with, it was never fixed, okay? This would be like, like someone going out with a drone and just shooting live footage of all the garbage in the Pacific Ocean, but never taking a piece of garbage out. Like, you would think that if that was like the live stream channel we all got at home, we would one day get to the point where we're just like, Man, we should do something about this. This is really gross. Like, we can see it. We can identify it. We're very acutely aware of an issue. Let's do something about it. This is what, like, the Levitical priesthood and the laws was like. It was like, hey, you have a need for something. You have a desire. This isn't working. You're aware of this. And the people should have been asking, okay, then there must be another way. How can we do this better? Is there a different way? And they wouldn't have had to look very hard in order to find it because God had been talking about it, right? The very verse that they are quoting here from the psalm when David wrote this. They, this is what our author is saying. He's like, if the Levitical priesthood worked, why when David prophesied in Psalm 110 did he say, I'm going to send one who will be a priest and king forever by the order of Melchizedek? Why did he say there was a different order that it needed to come from? That's because it didn't work and God wanted and was creating a different way. He also said it very clearly in other passages in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, 31, he says, A day is coming. Okay, tell me if he's foggy on the details here. A day is coming where I will create a new covenant with Israel and Judah. Do you know what happens when a new covenant is created? The old one is null and void. This is what our author is trying to get the people to see. He's trying to get the people to see that that high priest has come in the order of Melchizedek. His name is Jesus, and he has come with a new covenant in hand in a greater way, and it is by this way that we enter boldly before the throne of God. This is what he wants his people to see, that this has been the introduction of a new covenant, and it works because Melchizedek is a legitimate high priest, and Jesus has fallen and follows in his line and is now our great high priest forever. This is what the passage wants us to see, that our perfect priest has now come, that he has taken the law and showing us that the new law is that we're no longer under the law. This is what he has done. And he's done this by his eternal life, the passage says, and by the oath that God has given to him. And I would much rather have that leader and that high priest than one who just inherits his position based off of his birth order. I would much rather have a high priest who has attained it by a higher calling, by an oath, by a perfectly lived life. 
This is who Jesus is. Now we're going to finish up chapter 7 and take a look at our third point for how this chapter shows us a Melchizedek priesthood is greater than the Levitical one. So verses 23 to 28. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I got to read that one more time. Like, this is the gospel right here. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our needs, one who's holy and blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He's unlike the other high priests. They... He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins. He sacrificed for your sins, you guys, once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath, the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. And I'm just going to read the first verse of chapter 8 because it summarizes everything right here and then we're done. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord and not by man. Our last point here for this morning is forever and ever, amen. This is the point that is being made, that it is Jesus who now sits on this throne. He is now king and high priest, carrying both positions, and that position in that place is for all of eternity. Forever he shall be our king of peace and our king of righteousness. This is what we need to see, and that he now rules in a heavenly tabernacle, a true place of worship. He is greater not because of the law God gave, but because of the promise that God made. Jesus is greater not because of the law God gave, but the promise and the oath that God made that he would create a better way. His priesthood is never going to end. There is no disruption to his service, unlike, like this passage reveals, there was for the high priest. There was many of them. Actually, throughout the history of this nation, there was 84 high priests, not to mention all of the lesser priests who would have served underneath them. But now, hear this. One man has come, and he has filled this role, and played this part, and done all of the requirements so perfectly, he has done what 84 plus countless other men could never, ever do. And he did it once, and he's done it for all of eternity, because he came, and he played the part of perfect, sinless, high priest. And then he didn't just Offer a sacrifice, he became the sacrifice, and he died for our sins. This is what Jesus did. It is showcasing to us that there was no number of sacrifices, no amount of effort, there was no long laundry list of good deeds that we could do where we could ever accomplish through us what Jesus has done for us. This is what our author is trying to get his readers to understand. And they needed to because the persecution that they were facing had them contemplating going back. But going back to what? Going back to something lesser. Going back to something weaker. Going back to something earthly and that is not what they truly needed. I mentioned this last Sunday when we were speaking about this, is, is I do understand, in a sense, the struggle that they would have had because they went from a religious system that was very tangible. They had a temple that they could see, that they could walk into. They had a sacrificial system that they could take part in. They could bring their penance. They could lay something down and feel good about it. There were high priests that they could see and show honor and respect to. It would be hard to walk away from that. But what our author is trying to get them to know is that those things were only and always a shadow of the fullness of what we now have in Jesus. The entire Old Testament structure was all of it 
was only ever designed to be a picture pointing to a person, and now he has come, and he's going nowhere, and his name is Jesus. This is what our author wants us to say, and I personally feel like that requires a huge amen. Amen? Now I'm going to accept that amen, as all you reluctant converts have now converted. Mission accomplished. Well done. Thanks for playing this morning. Um, No, but here's the thing. I'm going to say this. We're getting ready to close up here. I'll invite the worship team up in a minute. But I will just say this. If you're still not convinced that what Jesus did was greater, I'm just going to remind you of a very simple fact, and that's this. When Jesus walked on the earth and the high priests and the leaders of that day tried to kill him, they intended to kill him under that law. They were killing Jesus, they believed, under the law that they had been given. They thought he had broken it, so they hung him on a cross because they thought he had broken their law. Now, here's the thing. They were right. They were right in a sense. They were right in the sense that Jesus was breaking things, but when they killed him on the cross, the only thing that he was breaking was that law. The only thing that he was breaking was sin's shackles on our lives. The only thing that he was breaking was the door on that tomb because even though he died, he rose again, and when he did, he overcame Satan, sin, and death and accomplished everything that the Old Testament was a shadow of and was pointing to because our God, our King, our High Priest, lives and reigns forever much better you're allowed to clap Pentecostal people I shouldn't have to remind you so I'm going to invite the worship team back up this morning as they come I'm just going to put a one sentence uh, wrap up on our message this morning because it applies this all applies to us today so here's what it is Jesus is able to do what no religious system ever could And I will even add this. He's able to do what no religious system ever can. I'll even go further. Jesus is able to do what no religion, no spiritualism, no self-help, no mind over matter, no stick-to-itism, no self-determination, no job title. Jesus is able to do what none of these things will ever accomplish. Now, I want to make something clear. If you try some of those things, here's the truth and the reality. You may find something. You may find something that will help you, encourage you, help you maybe even find a sense of purpose or a sense of belonging. You may find something. You may even find some practices that will help you feel like you're identifying uh, places of weakness in your life, maybe even sin. You may even feel like you're paying a penance for the things that you did. But what what, what I'm basically saying is this is that you don't, I'm not going to claim that in order to be what the world would quote-unquote call a good person, you don't have to be a Christian necessarily, because I've seen them. I've seen lots of non-Christian people who are good people. But here's what I'm getting at is this is that no matter where you turn, no matter what you look to, no matter what it is, even if it provides something, I am telling you this morning that what it is giving you is only a shadow. It is only a glimmer of the fullness that you will ever have in Jesus Christ. That is exactly what one of the definitions of the word shadow means. It means a trace amount. And if you are turning to anything, I do not care what it is, that is short of Jesus Christ, you are only ever going to encounter a trace amount of what God has in store for you. You will only be chasing shadows. So this morning, I want to invite you, if you are here in the building, maybe you're watching online now or in the future, and perhaps you're sensing that. Perhaps you're feeling like, I'm stuck in the shadows. Perhaps you love the Lord and you're thinking, I feel like I've been slipping back into the shadows. I've been looking for hope in the wrong places, looking for identity from the wrong people. I want to invite you out of the shadows this morning and into his marvelous light. Because this is what our God has come to do. We're going to sing our new worship song again this morning. But before we do, I just want to read some of these lyrics because I love, 
I love, I love that call to re-surrender. And we want to do that. I want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. But before I do, I just want to just read some of these lyrics to you. Mark your people with your presence. Make us a place where you delight to dwell. May we heed your hand's correction, O Lord, our shepherd. You do all things well. Your love is firm as it is tender. Your law is perfect and your judgment's true. As we run to resurrender, you will restore what we return to you. I don't care what the enemy makes you think is lost. God will restore what we return to him. You are restoring as we yield anew. If you're calling, we're coming. We're not walking. We're running. God, we need re-surrender. We re-surrender. God is calling someone this morning. And so as we wrap up the sermon, I want you to just close your eyes and bow your heads. If you need to re-surrender, if you maybe need to surrender for that first time in your life, I want to invite you. If you're online, you can just send us a message, office at duncanchurch.com. We will reach out to you. But if you're here this morning and you're identifying that, you go, I need to re-surrender, Lord. I need this. Call me out of the shadows. I don't want a small amount, Lord. I don't want a trace amount. I want all of you. If that's you, would you just put your hand up this morning? Just shoot your hand up right where you are. I'm going to pray over you this morning, and then we're going to worship. Lord Jesus, we come before you right now, and the hands that went up this morning, Lord God, and the hearts that may be online now or in the future, Lord God, we are praying over them, and we are asking you not to do something uh, out of character. We're asking you to do what you've already done and continue to do, Lord God. Come and make anew, resurrect hearts, resurrect lives, bring hope and purpose in the right way, in the perfect way that is in accordance with your will, Jesus. Jesus, you died, you rose again so that your spirit could come and indwell us. I ask that your spirit comes and on every heart that is willing this morning, will it rest, will it empower them and may we go forth to be people who daily re-surrender to you and then daily walk in the confidence of who our king and high priest is. We pray these things in your name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or Find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.